This week, EP Energy creditor groups organize Blackhawk Mining and RSA talks, Hexion files Chapter 11 plan, and PG&E faces pushback on its request for a 16% return on equity. More on all this, and as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg podcast, where each week we bring you the latest top developments in high yield and distressed debt and bankruptcy. I'm Mark Gardner, reporting from Reorg's offices in New York City. And I'm Karen Lung. Later this episode, we'll hear from Reorg America's senior editor, Jason Sanjana, and distressed debt legal analyst, Ray Nagiot. Ray and Jason will discuss the latest developments in the ongoing dispute between Jay Alex and McKinsey regarding McKinsey's disclosure practices. Stay tuned for their conversation. It's Sunday, April 28th. A group of EP Energy one and a half lien bondholders, including Elliott Management, has organized with Millbank as legal advisor and Hulihan Loki as financial advisor, sources told Reorg. The one and a half lien bonds comprise a $1.092 billion 9 and 3 eighths tranche due 2024 and a $1 billion 8% tranche due 2025. Separately, a group of bondholders with cross holdings in the company's $1 billion, 7.75%, one and eighth lien notes due 2026, and $500 million in 8%, one and a quarter lien notes due 2024, is working with Morrison Forster and PJT Partners, the sources said. A coupon on the one and one eighth lien notes is due May 30th. EP Energy, based in Houston, is the former exploration and production arm of El Paso Corporation. EP was purchased by a private equity consortium led by Apollo Global Management for $7.2 billion in 2012 after El Paso's acquisition by Kinder Morgan. The company's debt totals about $4.4 billion. In the third quarter of 2018, EP Energy was free cash flow positive for the first time in its history. CEO Russell Parker on a November 8th conference call said he believed the company could organically delever and that on the basis of current commodity prices, it could be neutral to slightly free cash flow positive on maintenance capex of $500 million. However, company reps had a different tone during the fourth quarter and full year 2018 earnings call earlier this year. CEO Parker limited himself to two brief statements. CFO Kyle McEwen stated that the company, quote, continues to look at all liability management options to address near-term debt maturities. Sources told Reorg this week that Blackhawk Mining and its lenders are finalizing terms of a restructuring support agreement that would entail either an out-of-court restructuring or a prepackaged Chapter 11 filing in Delaware in the coming weeks to improve the coal producer's liquidity, delever the business, and put the company on sounder footing to pursue merger and acquisition opportunities. The Lexington, Kentucky-based company is discussing raising $40 million to $50 million of new capital through a rights offering backstopped by a group of lenders with positions in both the $639 million first lien term loan due February 2022 and the $300 million second lien term loan maturing in April 2021, the sources said. Under the contemplated restructuring, the company would extend the maturity of its first lien loan by two years, replace amortization payments with a cash flow sweep mechanism, 
and reset certain covenants to better reflect current business performance, the sources added. Blackhawk's first lien asset-based revolver maturing in September 2022 with $59 million currently outstanding would be reinstated, the sources said. Ownership of the reorganized company would be split between secondly lenders who would be fully equitized and rights offering participants, the sources said, adding that the situation is still fluid and that the terms of the deal could change. Trade creditors to Blackhawk are expected to recover 100 cents on the dollar and be paid in the ordinary course, according to sources. PG&E kicked off the week by filing its cost of capital proposal with the California Public Utilities Commission, saying that the company expects to fund up to $28 billion in energy infrastructure investments. If approved by the CPUC, PG&E's proposal would update the current return on equity from 10.25% to 16%. PG&E is proposing a $1.2 billion increase in its currently approved cost of capital, based on a 16% return on equity. At a press conference on Tuesday, however, California Governor Gavin Newsom said that PG&E is, quote, not going to get 16%, period, full stop. Newsom said that the utility didn't deserve the increase and said that for the utility to seek to improve, quote, Wall Street returns was too much to ask. On Monday, PG&E announced an agreement with Blue Mountain Capital Management that included the appointment of Fred Buckman to the board of both the utility and the holding company. Under the agreement with Blue Mountain, the hedge fund committed to withdrawing its slate of directors for the PG&E Corporation board, which included Buckman, and agreed to vote all of its shares in favor of the company's board nominees, according to a press release. In court, Judge Dennis Montali approved the debtor's short-term incentive plan, or STIP, at a hearing on Tuesday. Approximately 10,000 employees are eligible to participate in the STIP, under which the aggregate amount of potential awards, if employees hit uh, target performance levels, is approximately $235 million, with a minimum payout of $0 and an aggregate maximum payout of about $350 million. That's inclusive of an individual performance modifier. On Wednesday, the Hexion debtors filed a joint Chapter 11 plan and disclosure statement. The plan embodies the terms of the RSA entered pre-petition between the debtors and certain holders of first lien claims, junior notes claims, and interest in Hexion Holdings, LLC. The debtors are requesting court approval to assume the RSA and enter into related equity and debt backstop agreements. As described in the DS, the plan proposes to restructure the debtors' pre-petition funded debt obligations with the proceeds of $1.6 billion in new long-term debt and a $300 million rights offering for new common equity, in each case backstopped by certain consenting note holders. On the plan's effective date, the reorganized debtors would also enter into a new ABL credit facility. The DS adds that the RSA now includes holders of approximately 90% of the debt to be restructured, including 87% of the first lien notes, 99% of the one and a half lien notes, 97% of the second lien notes, and 80% of the board and debentures. A board committee initially consisting of Cyrus, Monarch, Golden Tree, GSO, Brigade, and Davidson Kempner would select several members of the debtors' board of managers in consultation with CEO Greg Rogerson. 
The disclosure statement is set to be heard at a May 22nd hearing, and the debtors are targeting a June 24th confirmation hearing. Turning to the island of Puerto Rico, on Tuesday, the PROMESA Oversight Board filed a petition with the U.S. Supreme Court to review the First Circuit's February 15th decision regarding the unconstitutionality of the Oversight Board's appointment process. The Oversight Board called the decision, quote, profoundly wrong and deeply destabilizing, and said that the ruling was the, quote, first in U.S. history, holding that territorial officials such as the members of the Oversight Board must be appointed in conformity with the Appointments Clause of the U.S. Constitution. The Oversight Board then filed a motion with the First Circuit on Wednesday, asking the court to extend the stay of its February 15th ruling pending the Supreme Court's final disposition of the case. The filing notes that the President and the Senate have not yet nominated and confirmed Oversight Board members. And in the absence of a further stay of the Circuit Court's mandate, the Oversight Board will be forced to cease operations on May 17th. During an omnibus hearing on Wednesday, Judge Laura Taylor Swain heard a status update from counsel for the PROMESA Oversight Board, who reported progress in talks towards a Commonwealth Plan of Adjustment. In addition, counsel for the Oversight Board's Special Claims Committee said that the Special Claims Committee plans to file a complaint against 27 underwriters, nine law firms, and five accounting firms seeking to avoid certain transfers made in connection with bonds previously issued by the Commonwealth. The complaint will include allegations of breach of fiduciary duty, aid in, aiding and abetting, unjust enrichment, and constructive fraudulent transfer, he said. During the omnibus hearing, Judge Swain also ruled on several matters related to potential avoidance actions. The court denied in its entirety the request by the UCC to be appointed as trustee under Section 926 of the Bankruptcy Code, and also denied the Oversight Board's equitable tolling motion without prejudice. The court approved the joint prosecution stipulation between the Oversight Board and the UCC following a series of additional changes made to the stipulation throughout the day on Wednesday. The judge also indicated that she intended to approve the Oversight Board's motion seeking leave to amend and supplement the complaint in the adversary proceeding against certain ERS bondholders. In addition, the court reserved decision on the procedures motion filed by the ad hoc group of GO bondholders related to its omnibus conditional claims objection. And finally, legislation to create a local framework of incentives for investors in federal opportunity zones in Puerto Rico is now headed to Governor Ricardo Rosseo after a compromise version of the administration bill emerged from a joint conference committee and was passed by both the Senate and the House of Representatives on April 24th. The version of Senate Bill 1147 approved by the legislature establishes a Puerto Rico government public policy to, among other things, convert the island into a destination for opportunity zone funds to invest in priority projects and establish the tax, legal, and regulatory framework to encourage and facilitate investment in those opportunity zone priority projects. And here's a bird's eye view of some other top, top red stories from this week. Weatherford's options to address its near-term maturity wall could include an up-tier exchange. Franklin Resources held 49% of notes due 2021 or earlier as of February 28th. Multicultural media company Fuse filed for Chapter 11 in Delaware with a so-called straddle prepack plan 
that contemplates a debt for equity swap for the $242 million in aggregate of senior secured notes. As of the first day hearing, the plan was supported by 90% of the note holders, debtors council said. In momentum, Judge Drain on remand established cram down rates on replacement first lien notes at L plus 4.5% and on replacement 1.5 lien notes at 7.9%. The judge adopted a quote process efficient cram down rate standard. Neiman Marcus and holders of its term loan and unsecured notes amended their transaction support agreement to extend the deadline for a launch of an exchange offer for Neiman's unsecured notes to April 29th from April 22nd. New coverage, Emerge LP enters into an RSA contemplating out-of-court, in-court reorganization toggle. Out-of-court reorg includes exchange of second lien notes for new second lien notes, 95% of new common units. And lastly, more updates on the PHI debtors continuing litigation fight with unsecured creditors. The debtors filed an emergency motion on Friday requesting plan mediation in parallel with the confirmation process for the filed Chapter 11 plan. The debtors said they have been unable to engage in meaningful negotiations with the Unsecured Creditors Committee. The U.S. trustee also appointed a three-member official committee of PHI equity security holders this week. And here's Reorg America's Deputy Managing Editor, and senior legal analyst Angelo Thalassinos with the week ahead. Hello, credit market fans and enthusiasts to this week's portion of the podcast providing a view into the week ahead. Jim Holloway will be back next week, so for now, you're stuck with me, Angelo Thalassinos, one of many perplexed New York Giants fans. But I digress. Turning the week ahead, there are a flurry of earnings releases and conference calls along with several restructuring milestones as we get to month end. Bankruptcy courtrooms will remain busy this week as well, and the hallowed halls of Congress, the House Committee on Natural Resources, will hold a hearing titled The Status of the Puerto Rico Oversight, Management, and Economic Stability Act, or PROMESA, Lessons Learned Three Years Later. That full committee hearing is scheduled for Thursday. To begin the week, New York-based cloud computing and internet services company Fusion Connect reaches the end of its forbearance agreement as certain first lien lenders have been contemplating extending $25 million in bridge financing to extend restructuring negotiations. Neiman Marcus is also expected to launch its exchange offer for its unsecured notes Monday as part of its transaction support agreement entered into with holders of its term loans and unsecured notes. In the courtroom, the PHI Inc. debtors will seek to convince Judge Harlan Hale to appoint a mediator to facilitate plan negotiations as case parties, including the UCC, are seeking to push back the debtors' disclosure statement hearing. McDermott and Diamond Offshore also report first quarter earnings and hold accompanying conference calls on Monday. On Tuesday, forbearance agreements are scheduled to expire for Blackhawk Mining and Monotronics, respectively, while the pace of earnings releases escalates and includes Diebold, Intelsat, CBL, Community Health, and Frontier Communications. A UCC formation meeting is scheduled in the Fuse Media Chapter 11 case on Tuesday, while the Vanguard debtors have a scheduled final dip hearing. And then, in the immortal words of Justin Timberlake, it's gonna be May. The first of the month brings an expected Chapter 11 filing from IT services company SunGuard and the potential emergence from bankruptcy of iHeart, which just last week gained FCC approval of its assignment and transfer applications. 
Also on Wednesday, CloudPeak reaches the expiration of its forbearance agreement and has a $17.4 million coupon due on its 12% second lien notes due 2021. Montronics also reaches the end of its grace period on a missed coupon payment on its 9.125% senior notes. In addition, Hexion is back before Judge Kevin Gross for its second day hearing, while Avis and Hornbeck release first quarter earnings. Aside from the U.S. House Committee on Natural Resources permissive focus hearing on Thursday, the day is dominated by earnings releases and conference calls, including from the likes of Bombardier, Teva, Scorpio Tankers, Avon, PG&E, Pioneer Energy, Avis, Hornbeck, Talon Energy, California Resources, and Altis USA. And finally, the week ends with a disclosure statement hearing in the Exco Chapter 11 cases before Judge Marvin Isger late on Friday afternoon. Fingers crossed that the hearing concludes in time for everyone to celebrate the very punny Star Wars Day on May the 4th and the Cinco de Mayo celebration of the Mexican Army's 1862 victory over France at the Battle of Puebla during the Franco-Mexican War on May 5th. Quite the week coming up. That's all for me, folks. But as always, stay tuned to Reorg for the latest developments. Thanks, Angelo. Now here are Jason and Ray to discuss the latest developments in the McKinsey J. Alex dispute. Thanks. This is Jason Sinjana, Senior Editor at Reorg. I'm joined by Reorg Legal Analyst and our in-house McKinsey J. Alex expert, Ray Nagiat. We'll be discussing today what's, happening, what's happened since our last podcast on the subject in late January. As a very brief refresher, for the past few years, J. Alex and McKinsey RTS have been in what often feels like a war of attrition over the pr- propriety of McKinsey's conflict disclosures under the federal bankruptcy rules. The fight has taken on increasing prominence as McKinsey has become a more active player in the bankruptcy advisory market and as McKinsey has faced increasing ethical questions regarding the wider web of its advisory services. Jay Alex is the retired founder of Alex Partners, a direct competitor of McKinsey's in the turnaround advisory space. In his personal capacity, Jay Alex formed a fund called Marbo to purchase claims in cases where McKinsey was retained or proposed to be retained and to use such creditor status to seek to sanction or disqualify McKinsey from having its engagement approved. Fun fact, the New York Times, which seems to have quite an open line of communication with J. Alex, recently reported that Marbo was named provocatively after McKinsey's own venerated former leader, Marvin Bauer. J. Alex has been very clear that his fight is about what he perceives as McKinsey's rampant fraud on the bankruptcy system via intentionally inadequate disclosure of conflicts. McKinsey denies all fraud allegations and says that it's always augmented disclosures when required by the United States trustee or a bankruptcy court. It says Alex is conducting a, quote, coordinated and calculated campaign to push McKinsey out of the Chapter 11 advisory business. Despite all the bluster, and as we'll review today, this fight spans at least three bankruptcy courts and one federal district court and has already seen its first cert petition to the Supreme Court. Despite all of that, at its core, this dispute is about some of the most mundane but important rules of bankruptcy practice. Bankruptcy Rule 2014 says proposed estate professionals must disclose their connections with debtors, creditors, or any other party in interest. McKinsey has done so using redacted or categorical descriptions rather than specifically naming its clients and has allegedly omitted from its disclosures the holdings of its investment affiliate, the McKinsey Investment Office, or MIO. The MIO is a $25 billion internal investment arm that serves McKinsey personnel either via pensions or privately offered investment vehicles open to McKinsey partners, former partners, and their immediate family members. 
McKinsey also limits its conflict disclosures to a specified look-back period and argues that nearly every other firm in the space does so too. For its part, J. Alex and Marbo say the rules apply across time and must be applied in absolute terms. So what's happened since our last check-in on this in January? Quite a bit, as we'll discuss. But at the same time, and despite scores of briefs in multiple venues, no court has weighed in on, on the core of the dispute, the scope and breadth of the bankruptcy rules disclosure requirements, and whether and to what extent McKinsey flouted those rules. Uh, as for progress and development since January, most notably, the mediation before Judge Marvin Isger bore fruit, and as Ray will discuss, McKinsey has reached both a comprehensive $15 million settlement with the United States trustee and a separate agreement with the Westmoreland coal debtors that provides for a process whereby McKinsey will develop a new disclosure protocol and make a renewed retention request in that case later this summer. The United States trustee settlement was approved last week at a rare three-judge hearing simultaneously held in Texas, Virginia, and New York. McKinsey did not reach any deal with Marbo and J. Alex, and as we'll discuss, Marbo continues to fight McKinsey in multiple courts. On that front, Marbo failed to persuade Judge David Jones to revisit his approval of the Westmoreland revised disclosure protocol process and is facing a pending decision from Judge Kevin Hunnikins on whether it has standing to bring fraud on the court challenges to McKinsey's prior role in the Alpha Natural Resources case. Just recently, the United States Supreme Court refused to grant cert to review a string of findings that Marbo lacks standing to appeal various settled orders in the Alpha Natural Resources cases. However, Marbo has lodged a separate series of fraud on the court allegations and, as we'll discuss, argues that the standing rules are different in that context. But first, it's worth touching briefly on developments with respect to McKinsey's work for Puerto Rico. On February 18th, the PROMESA Oversight Board Special Counsel filed its final report, concluding that, quote, McKinsey, in its work with the Oversight Board, complied with all legal and contractual requirements. To be cl clear, the PROMESA context is different, and the rules and requirements analyzed in the report are not the same rules as in Chapter 11. But the over 100-page report includes an extensive discussion of how the McKinsey Investment Office operates, and the report reaches a pivotal factual finding that, if adopted in the separate Chapter 11 context, could cut the legs out from one of the main thrusts of Marbo's fraud allegations. That is, the report found, quote, the McKinsey consulting arm is effectively walled off from its investment arm. There is no sharing of confidential information or resources, except in very limited circumstances, none of which is implicated here. In part based on this walling off of information, the report reached a broad conclusion that McKinsey, quote, complied with all legal and contractual requirements, even while confirming that the MIO had direct investments in COFINA bonds during McKinsey's work for Puerto Rico and finding that the MIO still invests in third-party managed investments in Puerto Rico debt. So let's turn back to the bankruptcy courts and talk about what came out of the recent mediation and where the McKinsey disputes are heading next. Ray, can you walk us through the settlement details? Sure. As noted in our January 20th podcast, the parties were ordered to mediation. Judge Marvin Isker served as the mediator and on February 19th announced that McKinsey had reached separate settlements with the U.S. trustee and with Westmoreland. Judge Isker indicated that McKinsey had not, however, reached any settlement with Marbo. Under its settlement with the U.S. trustee, McKinsey agreed to pay $5 million to the debtors or the estates in each of the Alpha Natural Resources, Sun Edison, and Westmoreland bankruptcy cases. The settlement also includes certain mutual releases as well as the U.S. trustee's release of disclosure-related claims in those three cases and in 11 additional cases. 
Among other things, the settlement also preserves the U.S. trustee's right to object to McKinsey's retention in the Westmoreland cases on any grounds other than McKinsey's prior disclosures in the 14 cases. After hearing argument on April 16th, the respective judges in the Alpha Natural Resources, Sun Edison, and Westmoreland cases issued an order later that week approving the U.S. trustee settlement as, quote, fair, reasonable, and entered into in good faith. Although the objections to the U.S. trustee settlement itself had been withdrawn, various parties raised concerns at the hearing regarding how the settlement proceeds would be distributed in each of the three bankruptcy cases. For example, Marbo argued that McKinsey should not be allowed to benefit directly or indirectly from the settlement proceeds. In order to preserve the parties' respective rights regarding distribution issues, the settlement order expressly provides that distributions will be made, quote, in accordance with the terms of the confirmed plans in those cases or further order in accordance with applicable law. I'm going to talk about the Alpha Natural Resources case shortly, but during a recent hearing in that case, the two sides had some pointed words about the content of Judge Isger's mediation report. In the report, Judge Isger said that the United States trustee settlement, quote, resolves the party's good faith disputes concerning the application of Bankruptcy Rule 2014, end quote. McKinsey has relied on this to say that what's going on here isn't fraud, but is rather just that, a good faith dispute. When McKinsey alluded to this line of thinking at the ANR hearing, Stephen Rhodes, the former bankruptcy judge in Marbo's primary bankruptcy counsel, got quite animated. He said Marbo was, quote, aghast at Judge Isger's statement and that the, agreement that the agreement resolves good faith disputes, since it's only appropriate, according to Rhodes, for a mediator to say that there were good faith negotiations not that the substance at issue constituted a good faith dispute. According to Rhodes, Marbo, quote, thought long and hard about legal action in response to this, quote, improper finding from Judge Isger. What do you think about that, Ray? Well, it really does cut to the heart of the matter, doesn't it? Fraud requires intentionality, and if the current rules are so hard to apply to current practice, and if the matters really are, quote, good faith disputes, then it's hard to see how that can be outright fraud. On the other hand, $15 million is a substantial sum, even for McKinsey. Those that have been following the dispute may view McKinsey's willingness to pay that sum as smoke, so to speak. And as the saying goes, where there's smoke, there's fire. Indeed, Ray, thanks. And what came out of the mediation with respect to the Westmoreland case? That's the one Chapter 11 where McKinsey has a live contested retention application. Under the Westmoreland settlement, McKinsey agreed to continue serving as Westmoreland's financial advisor, subject to court approval, after further disclosures in accordance with the disclosure protocol to be adopted by McKinsey. In their subsequent joint motion for implementation of that settlement, McKinsey and Westmoreland proposed, among other things, that McKinsey would retain an expert to assist it in developing new disclosure protocols. The court approved the proposed settlement implementation on February 21st. On March 6th, Marbo filed a motion for reconsideration of the court's February 21st settlement implementation order, which McKinsey opposed. In addition, on April 9th, Marbo filed a motion to compel McKinsey's disclosures of its affiliates' investments. Marbo insisted that the time to address McKinsey's retention in the Westmoreland cases was, quote, long overdue. The next day, on April 10th, Judge Jones denied Marbo's motion to compel. In doing so, the court explained, quote, at best, the motion represents a self-created emergency with no underlying substance. At worst, the motion constitutes an improper collateral attack on the court's prior order for an illegitimate purpose. 
Judge Jones warned the party's counsel that they are, quote, responsible for the words and allegations contained in pleadings on which their names appear, and that, quote, candor and professionalism must never be sacrificed in the name of overzealous advocacy. In an April 9th statement to Reorg, McKinsey said, among other things, that, quote, for three years now, Jay Alex, the founder of one of our competitors, Alex Partners, has engaged in a coordinated and calculated campaign to push us out of the bankruptcy advisory market using litigation, the media, and congressional lobbying. We have and will vigorously confront him in each of these venues, but none of his efforts changes the essential facts here, that McKinsey is committed to its client's success and has always delivered its work free of any conflict. In the midst of their exchanges on Marbo's various motions, McKinsey retained Jan Baker as his third-party expert to develop new disclosure protocols for Westmoreland and other cases. McKinsey later added Paul Singerman as an additional expert to participate in developing the protocol. Notably, at the April 16th hearing on the U.S. trustee settlement, Judge Jones expressed high praise for Jan Baker, noting that as a young attorney, he would, quote, walk three feet behind Jan Baker, hoping to pick up some knowledge. McKinsey has said it expects to file the proposed disclosure protocol at the end of May. Judge Jones reminded the parties, however, that although he hopes the protocol McKinsey is developing will lead to a national standard, he would not actually approve the protocol per se. McKinsey has until July 3rd to file an amended retention application, amended disclosures, or a withdrawal of its retention application. Judge Jones emphasized that the chosen course of action would be McKinsey's, quote, last attempt regarding its retention. A status conference to determine how things will proceed in light of McKinsey's chosen path is scheduled for July 24th. Judge Jones has observed that, quote, if it goes the way it's historically gone, this is going to be an interesting piece of litigation. Back to the Alpha Natural Resources cases now. It's been a busy week on that front. On Monday, April 22nd, the U.S. Supreme Court denied Marbo's petition to review the Fourth Circuit's opinion affirming various district court decisions dismissing for lack of standing and equitable mootness, Marbo's appeals of certain McKinsey-related orders in the cases. Then, on Tuesday, April 23rd, Judge Hunnikins held a hearing and reserved judgment on the separate issue of whether Marbo has standing to pursue its motion for relief from certain McKinsey-related orders. The motion for relief is premised on alleged fraud on the court, but Tuesday's hearing was simply about whether Marbo had standing to raise those issues. Judge Hunnikins said that he would issue an opinion and order shortly, so we're expecting a decision any day now. McKinsey says that because the confirmed ANR plan funnels all new recoveries that may come into the estate to the reorganized debtors, Marbo does not have a pecuniary interest, meaning a direct economic stake in the result of the allegations, and therefore Marbo lacks standing under Article 3 of the Constitution to raise its challenges. For its part, Marbo argues that its claims of fraud on the court under Rule 60D3 of the federal rules implicates special and peculiar standing considerations that the court has the equitable power to hear such allegations regardless of whether Marbo has a pecuniary interest in the result. At times, Marbo argued that the goal of preventing fraud on the court is so central to the judicial process that normal standing rules should take a backseat to the need to investigate. Separately, Marbo argued that it can satisfy the requirement of having a pecuniary interest anyways because any ultimate reward designed to remedy the alleged fraud, uh, it says, could be distributed outside of ANR's confirmed plan. 
Judge Hunnikins appeared sympathetic to parts of McKinsey's argument, at one point seeming to say that it was clear that a, quote, random person on the street cannot come in and bring even fraud on the court claims. But the judge also stressed that the court has its own equitable powers to investigate such allegations. Judge Shunikin pushed Marbo on whether the issue isn't really who gets to bring fraud on the court allegations. McKinsey agreed that the court has undisputed power to investigate alleged fraud on the court, but it did take the position that, the court, that used, the court could not use that authority to empower Marbo to do such an investigation because Marbo is not an independent third party. In promising a written ruling, Judge Shunikins observed that it was likely that however he ruled, the matter would be appealed. Uh, standing is also a key question in the Sun Edison case, right, Ray? It is. Marbo and McKinsey are currently at odds over Marbo's standing to seek relief from McKinsey retention and fee approval orders in the Sun Edison bankruptcy cases. Marbo seeks McKinsey's disgorgement of approximately $15 million in fees and expenses received in the cases. Marbo also asks that McKinsey be found liable for approximately $22 million for its, quote, pre-petition fraudulent billing and collection scheme. McKinsey maintains that Marble lacks standing to assert the claims at issue because Marble does not have a pecuniary interest in the result. At the April 2nd hearing, Judge Stuart Bernstein reserved decision on the issue of Marble's standing, but seemed sympathetic to McKinsey's challenge. A week later, Marble filed a motion for authority to file a post-hearing brief in support of its standing. A hearing on the proposed post-hearing brief is scheduled for May 2nd. Notably, at the April 2nd hearing, McKinsey pointed out that it had reached a separate settlement in December with the Sun Edison Litigation Trust that included a full release. McKinsey maintained that the settlement was reached after sufficient inquiry and that any creditor claim Marble might have was assigned to the litigation trust and covered by the release. In a filing made in the Westmoreland cases, Marble took issue with McKinsey's quote, jaw-dropping $17.5 million settlement to quote, secretly settle trust claims. Marble stressed that the $17.5 million Sun Edison settlement is in addition to the $15 million U.S. trustee settlement amount and the $1.2 million preference that McKinsey has already disgorged in the Westmoreland cases. This additional payment is even more smoke under the where there's smoke, there's fire theory I mentioned earlier. So Ray, where are we at now? I said at the beginning of this that since Marbo has begun its latest round of fraud allegations, no court has actually weighed in on how the disclosure rules should be applied to McKinsey. I guess Judge Jones in Westmoreland is at least scheduled to consider those questions later that, this summer. Is that the key moment? Well, you said at the top that this was a war of attrition, and it certainly seems that way to me too. I don't think the eventual resolution of McKinsey's retention in Westmoreland will bring an end to the fighting. It's clear that the Westmoreland Protocol will not resolve J. Alex's concerns. He has described McKinsey's efforts as a, quote, absurd protocol charade and insists that it is improper to allow, quote, a serial violator of Rule 2014 to create any protocol worthy of use in Westmoreland, never mind for nationwide use. In addition, J. Alex has already demonstrated his willingness to take matters up to the U.S. Supreme Court, as he did in Alpha Natural Resources. J. Alex also remains undeterred by the U.S. trustee settlement. With neither side showing signs of giving up, the J. Alex McKinsey saga seems destined to continue for the foreseeable future. Thanks so much, Ray. I guess we'll be back here on the podcast in a couple months at least. Thank you for listening to another Reorg Weekly Review. As always, you can find all Reorg podcasts on our site's media page, iTunes, and SoundCloud. This has been the Week in Reorg, and I'm Mark Gardner.